Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to welcome all of you watching and listening online, wherever you might be in the world today. We are glad that you're joining us. If you've got a Bible this morning, we'd love you to turn to John chapter 3 as we begin this brand new series. Uh, that would be great. God keeps bringing so many different people here to C4 week after week, baptism after baptism. We together keep getting to hear how they are meeting Jesus and how they're being changed by Jesus and how people who have never met him are meeting him, how people have walked with him for years are meeting him in a deeper way. And so in response to what has been happening, that has happened and is going to keep happening, we're starting a new series called Encounters with Jesus. Starting today, we're going to look at six different people that have met Jesus within the scriptures. And and the goal is to see. The goal is to be inspired. The goal is to be given vision on how to love and interact with this type of person as they continue to join us here. And of course, as we live our life with them as neighbors and family and friends. Let me give you the breakdown of this series. It's very simple. In this series, you might be the person and I end up speaking on and you actually might meet Jesus in the middle of a church service. You actually might be the person that Jesus is interacting with. In this series, we're going to learn how to point other people to Jesus. We're going to take very careful notes on how Jesus walks and talks with these type of people. And not only that, the goal of this series is to prepare us for the thousands more that are about to come and join us as we keep seeing. And that at the end of every single sermon, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a moment as a church to pray for this type of person in our region and ask him to bring that type of person across our region to himself through us and through other churches. In 2013, I was preaching through the Gospel of John, and I started this passage this way. In the suburbs, people tend to live two ways. They live fast, they play hard, they die young, and they leave a good-looking corpse. Or there's the opposite. They want to be good and kind and neighborly, and they don't want to do too much bad. You do family, you do work, you get a job. If you can find love and keep hold of it, that's what you hold on to, and you fill your life with entertainment. Those are sort of the two polar opposites opposites we find in the suburbs, and then there's all the shades of gray between the two. Be good, be bad, be a little of both. But see, that is actually why encounters with Jesus, and actually the gospel of John, for example, John's call for us to believe Jesus' words are so hard. That's actually why Jesus' life, words, teaching, and call become threatening to us when we really have time and give time to listen to Jesus. See, Jesus basically says these words. I've preached this many times in this church. To you that live fast and party hard, and to all of you that are good and kind, to you that are religious, and to you that are spiritual, to you that are very Canadian and line up properly in Tim Horton's lines, polite, socially involved at your local school, he says there is no difference between any of you. There's no difference. When it comes to meeting God. And we say, excuse me. And we pull out our list. And we start telling others why we are fundamentally different than that group of people. Or or that archetype of group people. And and see, Jesus comes along. And why again, he is so unbelievably life-giving and threatening. Is he puts every human being in the same position. Let me say it like this. The hardest people to bring to Jesus. Those that find Jesus the most, here's a good word, unreasonable. Are actually good people. 
Good, moral, kind, nice people, whether secular or deeply religious, find Jesus unbelievably offensive and hard to meet when they really begin to understand what his call is. See, Jesus says that being good or kind or religious or being spiritual or a mix of the both does not allow you, never does it give you access to God. Those actions or that worldview may be good for society and we need more good people, yes, but it is never eternal life giving It never pierces heaven. Every time I do a funeral, I immediately talk about scales. Because I know that the majority of agnostic people or religious people or spiritual people in their core believe that when they die, if there is a God, there will be a conversation between them and whoever's out there. And there will be this scale where the good will be weighing out the bad. And if the good is outweighing the bad, then everything's going to be okay. But Jesus comes into our religious semi post-Christian, whatever you want to call it, society, and says, there are no scales. You ever ended up in the wrong place and you thought you were driving to the right place the whole time? Has your computer taken you somewhere it shouldn't have in your car? All the spouses are like, yeah, he takes me there all the time. Yeah, I know. But the point is, have you ever been driving and you are 100% confident that where you're going is the right place until you end up there and it's the wrong place? See, this is the archetype of what we're talking about today. Most people think they're good, nice, kind people, and they live their life convinced that they're going to end up in the right place. And Jesus comes along and says, there is no scales, and actually you're going to the wrong place the whole time. That again, let me repeat it, is why Jesus' words are so life-giving yet offensive, so life-giving, yet piercing. And actually, many people, when they really hear Jesus say, this just seems too easy. Well, it's into that situation Jesus comes. John chapter 3 is where we're going to be, and in the middle of John chapter 3, there's that famous verse. For God so loved the world. God loves everyone. I love this because Jesus chooses to meet all sorts of people, even the good people that think everything's right when everything's wrong. Now, one of the best examples, one of the strongest stories about being good and being lost at the exact same time is found in a story some of you who grew up in church know about. It's the story of Nicodemus found in John 3.1. Let me read it to you this morning. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, John is unfolding his narrative. If you read the Gospel of John, it's quite intriguing. He moves from massive crowds now down to only one person. It's like the the story focuses down to one conversation. Now, most of us, when we read this verse, would sort of keep going, but we need to stop. Because the description of Nicodemus here, and later in verse 10, actually is going to provide a, a powerful, clear, crisp, and convicting conversation. See, he is three things. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a member of the ruling Jewish council, and he's called in verse 10, Israel's teacher. Why does it matter? Well, simply put, this guy is amazing. This is the guy you want as your neighbor in the suburbs. This guy has absolutely no reason in our minds to have need spiritually, but he has it the most. Okay, so first he's a Pharisee. Now, if you've done church and you've grown up in church, you know Pharisees get a bad rap. I grew up in churches that sang songs against them. You need to understand who they are, though, okay? Uh, The Pharisees were actually really good people. 
They were the pastors of the people. They were more religious, more honest, and more helpful to everyday people. They were looked up to in their communities. Pharisee simply means separated one. They were known as lay preachers and scholars, and they were not about the religious politics of Jerusalem in the sense of they didn't have time for the religious elites, and they weren't wealthy people overall, and they didn't play politics. They lived with, they hung out with an everyday person, and they weren't super wealthy, and they just wanted people to know God. That's why people loved Pharisees. Their life was about monitoring and living out all the requirements of God in the Old Testament. But then they started doing something that caused trouble. They invented hundreds of laws that weren't in God's law. So think about a fence, and then another fence, and then another fence, and then another fence. So their goal was to invent a bunch of human-made laws so you wouldn't get close to breaking God's law. And so you had the oral law, what they invented, and the written law, God's word. But that led to a problem. This started leading to a whole movement of outward change, but not inward change. It started leading Pharisees to pride. And also the fact that ordinary people didn't have the time, inclination, or ability to learn, let alone practice, hundreds and hundreds of laws that Pharisees valued so highly. And so basically the Pharisees became like the superheroes of their movement. No one could do what they were doing. And they started trusting in who they were were not in what God's work was in them. So it breaks down like this. Religion, not regeneration. Religion, not relationship. Religion, not heaven given rest. So Nicodemus is a separated one. He's a Pharisee, but he's not a normal Pharisee. No, no, there's something else. He's part of the Jewish ruling council. It's what we know in the Bible. It's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin actually had authority over every single Jew on earth. No matter where you lived, they had authority over your life. I've jokingly said if you would take a parliament and roll it into a Supreme Court and then make some weird version of the Jewish Vatican and put it all into one, that's what a Sanhedrin is. So absolute authority and the best scholars and the best leaders of their day formed the Sanhedrin. And this guy was part of that community. And not only that, there's a third description which makes this guy even more important. He's called Israel's teacher. He was regarded as one of the best philosopher teachers of his time. He was a serious thinker. He had real questions and real answers. This guy would have like two PhDs. He's the incarnation of smarts and religion. He's a lover of truth. He's working on behalf of everyday people. He's holding out all these laws. And oh, by the way, he's a great lawyer slash thinker. Educated, religious, committed, looked up to. And this is what people would have said. Everyday people would have said, look at that man's life. Look at his giving and his teaching and his service to us as everyday people. And, and they would say this, that guy, that guy knows God. Wow. That guy reflects God. That guy understands God. He's actually what we all want to be. He's like Captain America in that context. He's an unbelievable guy. I am sure God is so impressed with him. I sure am impressed by him. And if anyone knows God among all of us, well, it's Nicodemus. So this man, with all the credentialing that's right, and he's sincere, he's not faking it, this man is about to come face to face with the God he has spent a lifetime representing. He's actually about to come face to face with Jesus himself, and he's about to find out the truth about not only Jesus, but about himself. See, here's the truth we need to get in this series. There is no way you can encounter Jesus and not discover who you really are. So think about this. 
The book of John begins like this. John is Jesus' best friend, and he begins his gospel revealing to us who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word, uh uh-oh, was God. And the Word was with God in the beginning. And then in verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So now Nicodemus is about to meet his creator, and he has no clue. Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with them. Now why does he come at night? Fear? Maybe he was guarding his reputation. Maybe he's a prominent man and he could not be seen with such a threat to the institution he represented. Maybe he was seeking Maybe he was there on behalf of other religious leaders to seek or bring peace. Or maybe, because an open confrontation just happened in John, maybe he was there to say to Jesus, could you just tone it down just a little bit? Well, no matter the reason why, he meets Jesus. And notice what he calls Jesus. Rabbi, teacher, a term of great high respect. Again, he's not faking it. This is honest. You've come from God, he says. I know that you're the real deal. I see something in you, in your actions, in your miracles. I mean, you are from God. It's interesting. Did you notice it? It's the signs. It's the deliverances. It's the healings that start the conversation for Nicodemus. But he does not know that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus doesn't linger, by the way, long with the miracles because miracles start the conversations. They never end them. Have you thought about that? Miracles are open the door to Jesus. They're never the thing. So the conversation actually gets sort of abrupt. It's almost like in the text, Jesus cuts him off and goes right to the heart of the matter and says, well, I tell you the truth. Whoa, okay, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus says, you cannot, catch this this morning, you cannot be part of the kingdom of God, and there's that word, unless there's suddenly one door, one road, there's only one thing. You have to do this thing, and if you don't do this thing, you don't enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is huge. Our theme for the year is kingdom come. And we've been learning all year what the New Testament teaches about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a place yet. The kingdom of God is not the nation of Israel that you can fly to today. The kingdom of God is not this church or any church on earth. The kingdom of God is not found in geography. The kingdom of God is any space or place where the reign and rule, the lordship of God, is welcomed, embraced, and accepted through Jesus. So Jesus says to this guy, who's the best thinker of his day in religion, in Judaism, he says, by the way, you're not part of the kingdom of God. You don't, in other words, know God because you can't be in the reign and rule, under the reign and rule of God without knowing him. So in other words, you're not in that space until, you're not in that space unless a person is born again, born from above. So anyone who wants to meet God has to be born in a radical new fashion, a second birth from heaven. Now think about it. Most of us don't. Birth is not something we do ourselves. Have you thought about it? We don't have a meeting with ourselves before we exist and go, I want to exist. No. Someone else decides you're going to exist. And not only that, we really don't say, well, I'm now going to be born. Like everything about our existence and our birth, whether we like it or not, is the decisions of others. So the same here. Nicodemus, he's saying, hear this this morning. Salvation's a God deal. He starts the process. He brings us to life, to faith, to relationship. It's a gift from start to finish. It's all a miracle. It's another step in making us just humble. So Nicodemus, you think you're part of the kingdom of God, right? Why? Well, you're a Jew. 
And you've got the Old Testament, and because you're religious and you're good, and you actually do very sincere things, and you're a member of the Sanhedrin, and you're a double PhD, you're of course a member of the kingdom of God, right? Oh, just hold on. I just One question for you, he says under the night sky. Are you born again? The words would have hung in the air. Nicodemus' response is telling. Either he doesn't get it, he doesn't want to get it, or he's avoiding it. So he says, Jesus, like I respect you, but come on, this is a little crazy. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Weird picture, but yes, okay. He's asking real questions, not understanding, not buying in. He's like, this is, what he's saying, this is impossible. I love what one scholar wrote about Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a bundle of doubts and uncertainties and wishes and hopes, fears, habits, good, bad, built up throughout the years. It would be wonderful to break with the past and make a complete, fresh, new beginning. But how could that possibly be done? Can physical birth be repeated? No way, he basically says. And since that's a lesser miracle and that's impossible, how could I envision such a great new miracle of actually remaking a person's essential history and being? Regeneration. This birth is sheer impossibility. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. By the way, we learned when Jesus says that, we should pay attention, right? I I tell you the truth. No one. uh Uh-oh. I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Oh, there's another exclusive statement. It doesn't happen. Now, here's the question. What does water and Spirit mean? If you've grown up in church, there's a lot of conversation about this because he's basically saying you you cannot get into the kingdom of God, you cannot know God unless you go through this. So what does this mean? Well, some people think, well, this is talking about John the Baptist's sort of baptism. So you get baptized for repentance and then the Holy Spirit comes upon you. But no, that doesn't fit with the text. Other people say, oh, this is talking about Christian baptism. See, you got to get water baptized, and after you're water baptized, then you're spirit baptized, and everything works. Except, oh, the problem with that is Christian baptism doesn't exist right now, and he's talking to Nicodemus, asking him to join the kingdom, so no, context is king. So I started doing more and more work, and then I went, oh, right, this gets uncomfortable. Uh, maybe water means sperm or semen. You're like, wow, I didn't expect that word this morning. Okay. Um, in rabbinical literature... This was a way of talking about conception. They would talk about water all the time, allegorically, as semen. And they would basically say, you've got to be born physically and then been born spiritually. Other people think, no, this is actually talking about a woman's water breaking. You gotta, the water's got to come. You've got to be born. And then you've got to be born of the Spirit. Well, it's one of the last two for sure. And you know that, A, because of rabbinical literature, but deeper than that because of verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. In other words, there is no evolution from flesh to Spirit. You cannot use the power of you. You cannot use the power of religion or good works or education or philosophy or science to meet God personally, to be in right relationship with God. It takes divine intervention. We're all born physically, yes, but now you need a different birth. I love what that old pastor Chuck Swindoll so many years ago said. Religion is man-made. Religion is of the physical realm, impressive on earth, and rubbish in heaven. Jesus that night looks under the stars and looks at the man he made. This very good, 
very kind, very neighborly, very educated, very sincere representation of what we would want to be in our life. And he said, you, sh- it should not surprise, you should not be surprised at me saying you should be born again. The bomb drops. Don't miss the offense of the moment. Don't miss the call of Jesus, again, to a good, moral, kind, religious person. No one, he says, can experience the reign of God. No one can have a relationship with God. No matter your history, ethnicity, your religious act, all your theological training, Nicodemus, all your spiritual insights, all your doubts, uncertainties, wishes, hopes, fears, all your book writing, all your lectures, all the hundreds of things you do, supposedly in my name, they will never never guarantee you entrance. They're not evil. Actually, much of what you do is civilly good, but it will not save you. Basically, this is what Jesus is saying. Nick, you know God's will, right? You've got the Ten Commandments. You've got the Torah. You've got the prophets, Genesis to Malachi. You learned it from childhood. You know who God is. You know what God's world, word is and what he wants for the world, for families, for relationships. You can even discern morally right from wrong, which makes you superior, right, Nicodemus? You think that you're far beyond those ignorant masses of non-Jews who flock to emperors and idols and demons. And because you're a Jewish man, you're circumcised. You got God's mark on your body. That's all going to make you right. No. No, no, no. Let me break this down to you. No real person on earth that knows God ever trusts in what they do because they can't do it all the time. What? Say that again? No, no. No person who really has encountered God ever trusts in what they do because they cannot do it all the time. Nicodemus, you know that God, our God, is perfect. He demands perfection. So you need a heaven-given change because your best efforts, Nicodemus, never will cut it in the end. Jesus keeps going. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is everyone, with everyone who's born of the Spirit. In ancient times, wind was mysterious and un- unpredictable. And Jesus says, you know, the wind, right? It comes and goes, you're not sure. So the same with the Holy Spirit. God moves in unexpectedly. God moves in and calls and saves and redeems and transforms. God's work is unexpected, it's powerful, it's all-consuming, and it never starts with you being good or moral because you don't start the wind, someone else does. By the way, this is happening right now in this room and for some of you online. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. Jesus' response is awesome. You're Israel's teacher, really? And you don't understand these things? The penny drops. Desperately, Nicodemus is pulling out all his philosophy, his theology, his religious background, which has told him that religion and his ethnicity and his personal good acts of righteousness will keep him okay with God. And Jesus is coming to him and saying over the cover of darkness, no, no, it is faith only, then actions, not actions, then faith. Good works come after being born again. They are never an entrance. They are only signs of life. And then Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Wow, he says it three times. We speak of what we know. He's speaking about himself. And we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, oh my goodness, church, This is so wild, what he just did. He says, Nicodemus, you and I both know that no one by themselves has ascended into heaven. He would have understood immediately. Satan tried this, got shot down. 
Babel, the human race tried building a tower to pierce the heavens. God said, no thanks, shut that down. It is impossible to pierce heaven from down here. But then this is what he's basically saying. But see, Nicodemus, I'm different. My authority comes from heaven. Here's the implication. I have more authority than you, Nicodemus. Actually, I have more authority than all the books you've written, Nicodemus. Oh, actually, I have more authority than the temple, Nicodemus. What? No, I have more authority than the Bible, Nicodemus. See, humans cannot physically ascend to heaven, but God, God just might come down and take on flesh and come for us. Me. That's what I'm saying. And just in case you're missing what I'm saying, here's the catch. I am the son of man. I have come from heaven. Now Nicodemus was the top Old Testament guy in his day. He immediately would have understood Jesus' speak. Jesus said he's the son of man. This 30-something, uneducated, think about this, from some backwater is now claiming that he's from heaven. But more, he's actually claiming that he's the one that the Jewish people have been waiting their entire holy history life for when he said, I am the Son of Man. Well, immediately, he would have thought of Daniel 7 because this is the reference that Jesus is referring to. Here's what Daniel saw. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. And the Son of Man approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. And all people, notice this, and all nations and people of every language worship the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's a good amen moment, by the way. Right? Now watch this. This son of man shares God's power and shares God's worship. Well, the only person who's allowed to be worshipped is God. So something wild is going on here. And Nicodemus is sitting there and Jesus says, just so you know, right here, hashtag me. And Nicodemus is going, excuse me? And before he can even respond, before he can even start going, you have no right, Jesus keeps going and then says in verse 14, pulls out another Old Testament reference, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, by the way, this matters even more, because Nicodemus would understand the implications which we don't catch immediately. He's referring back to Numbers 21. Here's the story of a son, the the idea of being lifted up. It says that the people of God traveled from Mount Hor along the route of the Red Sea to go around Edom. And the people grew impatient on the way. Hmm. And they spoke against God and against Moses. And this is what they said to Moses. Ready? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came back to Moses and said, We have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said back to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look upon it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. 
Now, I want you to understand this. So this is what Jesus is saying. Understand the power of this. So just like they had to just only look up and trust in God's promise, and they would be healed immediately. So Nicodemus, all you need to do is look up and trust and give your life to the one that's going to be lifted up, and you will be healed completely. And by the way, Nicodemus, I'm going to be lifted up. It's called the crucifixion. So to be born again, to be born from above, to know God himself, to be forgiven of sins that you've done against yourself and others and God himself, all you need to do is look at me and stop looking at you. Jesus is telling him that new birth comes through a simple gaze of faith, not a life that is perfect. Jesus is saying that being born again comes through a simple gaze at the Savior and not the burden of trying to live a perfect life. At this moment, the conversation shifts. We're not told what Nicodemus' response is. Suddenly, in the book of John, it moves literally from a conversation between two people at night And it's sort of like the wide-angle lens gets larger and larger and larger and larger and larger, and suddenly the conversation is about all of humanity. Sin leads people away from God. Adam and Eve hid from God when they sinned. We've been doing it ever since. We've been hiding through wild living and through religion and everything in between. But just like with Nicodemus, Jesus has come into the world to face us to see what we will do with him. And since Jesus is God's last word, we now have the great opportunity to not hide anymore, but be free. Or the opposite, we have the opportunity to become entrenched in our hiding from God and have that be our experience forever. See, that's why Jesus comes. And this is why John gives the gospel in miniature fashion right here when he penned these amazing words that have literally changed history. God is love, right? He is bottomless. He has unbounded, he has vast love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not die but have everlasting life. God is so much about love that he sent himself to bring us out of hiding and heal us from all snake bites in life. But you got to keep reading the passage because this is what Jesus was implying with Nicodemus. Most people read John 3.16, but they do not read the next few verses, but you must. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, no, no, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. In other words, the judge has spoken. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light, notice this, for fear their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that what has been done has been done through God. Jesus is the only Savior because he is the only one that has actually come from heaven. And by the way, let me add, he's the only one who's come back from the dead. No one has come back from the dead. Jesus is coming back from the dead. So if you trust in anyone else or you trust in anything else other than Jesus for abundant life or eternal life, you have to replace Jesus. 
Jesus' solemn words forever exclude and forever remove the possibility that salvation can ever be accomplished by anything else other than Jesus. And the implication also is you will be forever removed, forever hidden from God that is condemned if you trust in, believe, have hope in, or have confidence in anyone else or anything else or any other leader or any other book or any other action other than Jesus. See, this is the brilliance and the offense of Christianity. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you Nicodemus? Are you the good and kind and morally upright and involved person? Maybe you're even deeply religious, and you truly are that person. And yet, if Jesus was sitting, you, sitting with you at a Starbucks today over a flat white, guess what he'd say to you? Are you born again? His conversation would start there. It would not start with everything else. And he'd ask you, are you born again? I love when another pastor wrote, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does believing in Jesus mean you think that he was a historical person? Or you accept the fact that a guy named Jesus lived sometime at some point? Or does it mean that you really admire him as a person? Or you even take up his cause or you want to become like him? Does that mean you have warm feelings about Jesus? Or you give your time and money to really please him so he accepts you and likes you? No, all those beliefs are good. Some are even necessary, but that's not where you begin If you say you believe in Jesus Christ, what you're saying is, I know him. I have met him. I trust him. I've placed my complete confidence in him. Everything, listen closely, everything I know about this life, everything that happens in and around my death, everything that happens after my death depends on Jesus. See, that's what it means to believe. If you've truly crossed the line of faith and you've entered and you know God, you have no problem now saying that Jesus is the Son of Man, that He's the Son of God, that He's Savior, that He's God in flesh. See, the decision for some of you this morning, and it's not what you were expecting probably, is this. To you that are good and kind and religious and Canadian, Jesus would maybe ask it to you this way. Will you choose me or will you choose your pride? See, if you have no pride then Jesus' words are freedom to you because you see that the burden of trying to prove yourself to God and live a perfect life is an impossible thing. Let me put it this way. If you can't love your kids and your wife or your friends perfectly, how do you think you're going to do it for God? Just think about that. I can't even do it with my three children. How could I do this for an eternal God? So Jesus comes and says, if you would just drop your pride, and trust in me and say yes to me and drop all the other stuff, you will be born again. But if you actually choose that actually you can do something about it, pride will become your idol. And my words, that would be Jesus' words, will be massively offensive to you because he's saying all that you trust in will not last. That is sort of what is taking place in this moment. And so Jesus comes in all sincerity and he says to some of you this morning and some of you online who are Nicodemus, this is the conversation I from eternity have wanted to have with you. Would you like to truly know me and be free? I'm going to take an opportunity right now to do this because I'd be remiss not to. So let's just bow our heads for a moment and then I'll speak to the church about something else. But if this is you, if you are Nicodemus, Good, kind, religious, educated, involved thinking, but you've never said yes. You simply never lifted up your head and looked upon Jesus and say, I trust in you and your work and not in mine. This is the moment. Right now in this moment, this is the moment. So just simply say this, Jesus, 
I think you're the son of man. I think you're the son of God. I, you're God in flesh. And I'm a pretty good person. And I'm pretty religious and, and, and thoughtful and kind. But I've trusted in me my whole life. Or maybe you need to fill something else in. I've trusted in my family or my education or my religion. And now I just need to say, I'm so sorry that I've done this. And now I trust in Jesus Christ, you. And I ask you, make me born again. I want the kingdom of God in and around me. I want to be your child. Forgive me for my sin. I confess you as God. And now, Lord Jesus, come give me eternal life. I pray this now for the first time in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's you, again, there'll be some instructions after, but so significant. For us who have crossed the line of faith, just a few thoughts. Because let me tell you, if you've noticed in our baptisms lately, a lot of Nicodemuses are showing up at our church. Have you noticed that? And here's what I want to teach you this morning. I use that word appropriately. I want to teach our church some things this morning. Here's the first thing. How do you talk to Nicodemus? Because Durham is full of Nicodemus. It's a great place to live. So here's the question. How do you talk to a Nicodemus? How do you talk to someone who's intellectual, religious, spiritual, and socially involved? Well, can I just, a few simple things, just for our learning and thinking. Here's the first thing. Find common ground. You ever had two magnets that suddenly stick together? There is so much common ground between we and this church and the Nicodemuses in our region. Many people have religious histories, and, and we have religious histories. That's common ground. See how Jesus started using what they shared together. They shared an Old Testament. They shared a similar background. He started the whole conversation where they already were together. One of the best ways we can continue to learn to love people and actually affirm people and care for people and respect people as Christians is to find common ground when we begin our conversation about Jesus. This is so important. I remember a woman in our church who had grown up in a Roman Catholic background and she had not met Jesus there. Some people had, she hadn't. And I remember my conversation with her and saying, I'm so glad you grew up in the Roman Catholic church. She wasn't expecting that from an evangelical Protestant pastor. I'm like, no, it's so awesome. She's like, why? I said, because you heard the Bible every single week at Mass. She's like, I did. I didn't get it. I said, I know, but you heard it. And every single week you saw the crucifix and you knew about Jesus. And every week you heard the Apostles' creed recited and she said it's amazing she said i've met jesus now i know the guy in the crucifix i know i know it's awesome um but th the point is this look at the common ground find the common ground between a person and you and begin the conversation there not only that don't look down on their whole past affirm their past but still at the end of the day you have to share the good news you still can't just live a good life you've got to share it but here's the last big thing it's so important it doesn't preach well in the moment, but it matters long-term for a church. Sit with people. Do you notice that Jesus sat with Nicodemus and they had a conversation? Twitter is not the place to do this. Facebook is not... No, no, I'll get a little angry. Facebook is not the place to argue with people about Jesus. If you care for someone, go for the Starbucks, or Tim Hortons if you're that person, but go... Give time to a human being, look them in the face, and have an authentic conversation. Because guess what? 
Eternity's at stake. So don't let your pride or the easiness of social media get you out of this. No, sit with someone and say, let's talk about this. I want to see your body language. I want you to see my body language. I want to tell you about the good news of Jesus. Let's debate and talk about this, but I want to do this face to face. Jesus sat with people. Jesus respected people. And Jesus still offended people, but he did it in that order. So as a church, as we're doing this, this is a great opportunity for us to actually see the kingdom of God show up in our backyards, at barbecues, all sorts of places. So why don't we end by doing this? We're going to do this every week. I'd love you to stand right now. The band's going to come up, but I'd like you to stand. And what we're going to do right now is we're going to pray, not out of arrogance. We're going to take a moment right now to pray for every Nicodemus in Durham. And we're going to ask Jesus to start showing up in their lives. So would you join me in sincerely praying about this? So Lord God, you are the same one that met Nicodemus 2,000 years ago. Amazing. And Lord, here's what our prayer is this morning. There is all sorts of people. There are thousands of people, good citizens in Durham, kind, good, and actually very devout and very religious in all sorts of different you know, perspectives. And here's our prayer. We're not out of arrogance because we, we're only saved because you met us too. But here's our prayer. Lord, this morning, would you look at each Nicodemus now in the region? I'm asking you to actually look at them, Lord. And here's our prayer. Lord, would you save them? We pray. We stand in the gap for every Nicodemus in the region. And we ask, Lord, would you begin to meet them? And Lord, we actually pray that you would begin to send Nicodemuses all across our paths in the next few weeks. And that they would meet the Lord Jesus in this church or other churches. But this is our prayer today. Lord, meet these men and women who are so faithful, so sincere, so good, and so lost. And we're asking Lord, of you right now, to use us as a church to bring those people to the Lord Jesus. Lord, you know the evil one hates this conversation, so clear a path. But we really ask for charity, power, and truth. We pray that many, many, many Nicodemuses will stand up and say, I've been born again. Like we saw last week and the weeks before in our baptism services where people stood up and said, I've been in church my whole life. I just met them. That's, we just pray this would happen by the hundreds uh, in our church. So Lord, thank you for this. And thank you, Lord, we end by saying this. Thank you so much too that you've removed the burden, the burden of religion and the burden of philosophy and the burden of moralism where we have to live this perfect thing maybe to get to know you. Thank you you came for us first. Thank you that you set us free from this burden. Oh God, we pray together uh, in, in firm faith. Keep doing this amazing thing you're doing in this church. Don't relent. Would you keep doing your will. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Okay, let's sing back to the Lord. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.